Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor, and I've been told on more than one occasion that I could definitely play a rabbi on TV. With me, as always, is my co-host, Father Harry Ottensasser. Hey, I'm Harry. Uh, I'm not quite a father, Daniel, in oh. any sense of the word, but I am a Jew with a degree in film studies, and I'm excited to be joined this week by a special guest. Our guest today was the co-creator of Sleepy Hollow for Fox, as well as a writer-producer on the Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19. He's also developed shows for CBS, NBC, HBO Max, and Disney+, Plus, as well as co-creating podcasts like It's 1999 and the current podcast like It's 1992. Phil Isco, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, today we'll be discussing the 2000 film Keeping the Faith, directed by Edward Norton, starring Ben Stiller, Edward Norton, and Jenna Elfman. Before we jumped into the film, we kind of just wanted to get the ball rolling and start by asking, what made you decide to talk about this movie? Why did you suggest it? Well, I guess the, the the best answer to that question is that I am uh, I'm not the most religious person in the world. Spoiler. Uh, I mean, I I I you know obviously. I uh, was raised Jewish and, um, you know, I take a lot of pride in my ancestry, but I wouldn't consider myself a particularly religious person. So uh, I, I really didn't want to cover a film that I felt was particularly, um, uh, it took too much of a deep dive into the, you know, religion of it all. Um, so I, I kind of was looking for a film that that I f felt was more, um you know, I guess faith-based and, and the idea of, of what it means to, um, uh, to care about something more community oriented. Um, and you know, I think, so I think it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's a really, uh, charming rom-com, or at least I did in 2000 when I saw it, I, I'll be honest, I hadn't seen it since 2000. Um, so watching it again, you know, we'll talk about maybe some of the issues that I have with it, but fundamentally, I think it's thesis statement is really lovely. Um, so, which is, is really sort of about, um, as I'm sure you guys have deduced, uh, you know, loving everyone and not feeling, um, you know, baked into any particular, you know, uh, organized religion. Yeah. I feel like it does a good job of sort of balancing the, re uh, reflecting like the authentic respective cultures, but then yes. also kind of like making a nice rom-com salad of it all. Yes, yes, yes. I would, I would agree. I think I was really surprised by that. Just how, cause you're saying, you know, it's not a very, it's not about, let's say, you know, the deep religious cuts of the movie. It really is universal, but I actually think the movie does a really good job at balancing, you know, it, it clearly was made by people who grew up Jewish or familiar or, yes. you know, had, sure. had the right team researching it. And at the same time, it, it kind of, it, it even like acknowledges kind of head on these tensions between, you know, your religious background and aspirations that go beyond that. It's not, you know, if you're, you're just finding out about this movie and you read the, the log line and it's, you know, uh, there's this, you know, love triangle between a rabbi, a priest and, you know, some woman like you, you wouldn't get the sense that this movie goes as deep and is as clever. I think about asking questions about that real tension between, like you're saying, you know, organized religion, faith, but also, you know, universalism beyond that. Yeah. And I, I think that it's, you know, it's a movie that has a couple sort of, you know, sermons. And and I think that it uh, sidesteps any sort of landmines in terms of seeming, and, you know, forgive the pun, but seeming too preachy. Um, you know, I think that the, the film does a good job of making sure that it doesn't um, feel like it's on a soapbox. Uh, and, and I think that that... Uh, obviously is there for universality and for accessibility and, and, and the hopes of, of reaching as many people as it can, but also just, you know, 
not wanting to get too bogged down in the weeds of what religion necessarily means to people. Like, I, I think that when you kind of break it down to its essence, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a compass for people. It helps people get out of bed in the morning and it makes their, their lives feel, um, you know, less overwhelming. Um, and it, it, it feels like there's a plan. <laughs> I think we all love plans. Um, so I, I think that, that, that notion, um, at its core, I think is really, is really quite, uh, charming and, 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 uh, works really well. There's an amazing scene that I'm hoping that we're going to talk about a little bit later mm. where, you know, there's a back and forth between, you know, Rabbi Jake and he's talking to the, uh, I guess, the board of the of the shul, someone representing it. And it's interesting because you could imagine a movie like this, and I honestly thought that this is where it was going, could really ultimately advocate for, you know, moving away from the kind of the regressive, you know, religious community that mm -hmm. surrounds him. That's a narrative that you often see. And this movie, you know, it really shined for me. And I, I am a person who's a practicing Jew, you know, religious. And mm. I was really moved by the way that I think this movie kind of goes both ways. I think it makes the case for, you know, individuals finding what, you know, they're drawn to. And it doesn't say, you know, this religion, he needs to, the, the best path for this community is to kind of move their religion into the future. It, it makes the case for there are values to, you know, tradition. And that's something we've spoken about, I think, throughout a lot of these movies sure. we've discussed. I, I, I thoroughly agree. I, I think that, you know, again, this film trying to sort of find its uh, its own way to, uh, I think it understands that its audience, there probably are religious people that watch it. There are people that are not religious that are watching it. I think that the universality of it um, is probably its strongest suit, quite honestly, that it doesn't try to alienate anybody. Um is a tall order considering the subject matter, you know, and I, I think that um, it does a pretty good job of navigating those waters. So yeah, it's, it's worth commending. I, I mean, I do feel like it, it ultimately comes down on like the side of progress versus like, you know, the old ways, the old rabbi, the old board, things like that. As someone who's also on the synagogue board, I'm like, it's not a bunch of like stodgy people. It's young, cool guys like me, you know, like, no, I don't know. But I, I, I mean, I do feel like this idea that they're like making a karaoke join and bringing together the whole community mm. in what used to be like a disco or something like that. I, you know, I think moving stuff forward while acknowledging the past, I think is, is kind of where they're at. So it's kind of like we were saying, it's kind of a little bit of both. Um, I did kind of want to ask you a question while we, you were, you, you, you did yeah. mention before that you had seen the film. I think it was when it came out 23 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Yeah. So while we're in the Wayback Machine and talking about the past, sure. I want to ask you a question about your days working with our friend of the show, Yuli uh, Mazinovsky, in the mailroom at UTA. Sure. sure. Uh -huh. uh, so I wanted to know specifically, this is from Yuli, he wanted to know if you could tell our audience more about rolling the 7 a.m. carts with him to deliver the trades while working together at UTA. Paint a picture for us. What was that? Uh, uh, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's not the most uh, glamorous picture to paint, but... Yeah, Yuli and I both worked uh, at UTA, which is a talent agency in in, uh, in Beverly Hills. And um, basically, back in the day, and I guess this is really, you know, it, it goes to show. I mean, I haven't I haven't worked at UTA now since uh, I mean 2012, so it's been a beat. Um, but I started in 05, and back in 2005, um, 
we still had something called trades, which are trade magazines, um, which are basically daily papers, if you will, that the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and every morning would get delivered around 6 a.m. And uh, some poor souls uh, in the mailroom had to be there for 7 a.m. to make sure that the trades were given to all the agents. So you would push these mail carts through the various floors of the agency and uh, make sure that each agent got a copy of The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Uh, I, I don't think this happens anymore. I don't believe that there are uh, tactile trade um, papers. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming. Um, my, my guess is that there's probably some sort of a, a weekly version of it or something to that effect. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I do uh, very much remember um, doing trades with Yuli at 7 a.m. on a on you know a Monday and just uh, being pretty miserable doing it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's 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 crazy to think um, it doesn't feel that long ago, weirdly, and yet it was. So right. there you go. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> oh, please, of course. I, w- I want to address some of the questions you had, you know, what does it look like today? Because mm. I don't often get to talk about my experience, but I did mm. work at a, uh, at a sales, at a film sales company out in New York. And nice. I was in charge of the trades for uh, the, the sure, several months sure, I was there. Sure. And it's very different nowadays. It's I bet. logging on to hollywoodreporter.com, the rap, you know, all those, and yeah. just kind of pulling in the articles, throwing them in a doc. I will say one uh. time there was someone I was working with really wanted the LA times for some reason and really wanted uh-huh. it, you know, the, the hard copy and sent me on around an hour going to every stand and store I could find in the city. And no one had it. You know, I think that's, that's probably a relic of the past. At this yeah. Point. It's, it is kind of, um, it's, 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 it's sad in the sense that, you know, um, newsstands going out of business. Obviously they used to be sort of a staple and there are still obviously a lot of them in, in Los Angeles, but, and obviously various other cities, but you know, there, it's a dying, it's a dying business. Um, the tactility of, of magazines and all that kind of stuff is obviously matriculated over to, to the internet and what have you. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, listen, I, I gotta be honest with you. I worked at UTA for, um, Jesus, uh, almost eight years as an assistant. And uh, I mean, I think I saw an agent reading the trades less than less than ten times. Ugh, so I, I the, <laughs> the idea that like information, important information that needs to be gleaned, you know, obviously delineates through the agency rapidly, through email, through text messages, whatever. So like, I guess you could comb through the trades, I guess, to sort of see what other stuff is, but like, it's kind of, you don't really need it. I feel like, can I throw in a a story from the trenches? Absolutely. This is, this is, uh, you know, I don't often get a chance to talk about my past life as a post PA at a, at at the white house in, in, uh, New York city. But my, my, I guess I used to do a lot of run. I was a runner. So I would like run tapes up and down, you know, but to union square, to the audio facility or to the dubbing house over here, it was like a commercial post house. And so I did a lot of plating and, you know, running to the different edit suites and giving them menus and figuring out which client wants what, and then yelled out for the wrong dish, all that great stuff. It's so glamorous. Um, but I think my record and the one that the thing that I'm most proud of is going to Starbucks and getting 17 coffees and having it all in one bag and being able to distribute that without one spilling. So that's impressive. I mean, that, that's 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 these are the, the various talents that we learn we have as uh, doing grunt work. 
I do feel yeah. like it makes you, I, oh God, I really sound sort of gray in the beard here. I do feel like it makes you sort of appreciate where you are if you look at where you've come from. Um, yes. Which absolutely. is maybe a clumsy segue to our movie, talking about tradition sure, and things like that. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, while we're still back in the past, let's, mm. let's go back a little further. Let's go to the 2000s. Let's get a little context on this 2000 film and let's travel back. In terms of our, our folks who are in the film, um, we have Ben Stiller. This is in the year 2000. Ben Stiller was like before Zoolander, before Meet the Parents, but after sort of Cable Guy, Mystery Men, and There's Something About Mary. So that's where he's at career-wise. Uh, Edward Norton, this is very interesting to me, post-American History X and Fight Club, but sort of pre-Death to Smoochie. And this was his directorial debut. And then he waited 19 years to direct Motherless Brooklyn, which is a huge stretch and a huge disparity in terms of genre and types of movie it is. Yeah. And then Jenna Elfman uh, was post-Ed TV and Gross Point Blank, but it was sort of during the run of her show, Dharma She's and Gross Greg. Point Blank? She, I think she was like maybe a supporting character. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, I, uh, yeah, I don't remember her in that at all. Yeah. Oh, yes, she is. She's totally, yes. Yeah, she's like at the, she's at the, the, reunion at the end sorry I, I think she was probably more known for like her dharma and greg that was probably uh, her yes, breakout so role so, so that's i think that ran till 2002 so she's kind of riding the heat of that mm -hmm. um and sort of this is a sure. so that's you know that's that's what our folks are at during the the production of this film and the film was written by Stuart bloomberg who had written on mad tv he wrote this movie called the girl next door and then later on he went on to write the kids are all right so mm -hmm. um and shout out to Jenna Elfman, who's a Cal State Northridge Matador. Go Matadors. <laughs> Got to shout out my alum whenever I have sure, the opportunity, sure. you know. Um, yeah. uh, so that's that's our context corner. Uh, cool. I'm going to toss it back to Harry for a special feature. It's the return of the IMDb summary. Mm. But before we move on, before yep. we move on, I don't mean to, to backtrack here. But Go for it. I just, that the context is so interesting because like you said, Edward Norton, you know, had never been a director before, kind of jumps in for one movie really for, you know, for the next 20 years, right? He only comes back to do Motherless Brooklyn. And I think those are the only two he's ever directed. They are. And the decision, you know, I, I wasn't actually familiar with this movie. We're going to talk about that, you know, in our impressions of watching this, but to just go back and see like a young Edward Norton, this was kind of his passion project, this very, you know, religious film or just Jewish, I guess, or or just dealing with religions, right? This kind of movie that's this questions of faith and, you know, community. And it just, it feels so out of place with his filmography, with where he was at that time. And I guess, you, you know, the, the narrative train you could make is that maybe he had done a lot of very intense movies. You know, we spoke about Fight Club, American History X, right, and wanted right. something more akin to a rom-com, but, you know, because he's a very thoughtful actor, wanted to really work in these challenges of faith and community. But it, it, it was such a strange, uh, just a strange spot, I think, in his uh, filmography. I will say, um, and not to not to disagree with you, but I will just please, throw this in there for, for what it's worth because I do I do think it's a it's worth sort of highlighting a little bit. Um, you know, he is in Woody Allen's Everybody's Everyone Says I Love You. Um, he plays a very sort of you know neurotic kind of comedic role in The People versus Larry Flint. Um, it's, it, it is, it's watching this film. I did find myself sort of thinking about, you know, the, the, the Edward Norton that perhaps likes, um, at the time, you know, we, not to go down the whole Woody Allen thing, but I do think that, um, you know, there is shades of 
Woody Allen in this film. Um, and I think that it's possible that A, he wanted to show his range. B, he knew that, you know, this was his first film, so he didn't want to necessarily do anything too particularly heavy. Um, you know, he is friends, I believe, with the screenwriter. I believe that the two of them are very close. Um, so I, it, it does feel like, and I remember thinking this in 2000 as well, that like, it's, if you're going to do the directing thing as an actor, it does feel as though there's kind of two paths, if you will. There's the kind of um, baby steps, smaller movie, keep it grounded and terrestrial and, and, and kind of light uh, or, you know, fucking Braveheart or Dancing with Wolves or something along those lines, right? Where it's like something so grandiose in scope and, and, and believing yourself to, you know, whatever. So all, all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I guess it's an interesting choice to your point, uh, Harry. I do think that like it is, you know, it, he's got, he literally has Fight Club coming out in October of, of, you know, 1999. And less than six months later, he's got this film. It is, it is Insane. jarring. It's, yeah. it's pretty, it is pretty crazy. But I, th I think the uh, the Woody Allen comp that you just made is really telling because, I mean, that's something very true to his character. I immediately, or his, him as an actor, I immediately yeah. thought of that movie uh, Sausage Party that came out a couple of years ago. Sure, where, uh, sure. If you can recall, sure. I mean, he's literally doing a Woody Allen impression. He is literally. The entire it. movie. Yeah. It's funny on this movie because I think, you know, thinking of scenes that we'll discuss later, like when he's, yep. you know, confessing his feelings to Anne and he kind of has that very neurotic, you know, kissing her and she's not really, he's not really getting what's going on. It yeah. plays so Woody Allen, but obviously, yeah. you know, he's, you know, if we're, if we're taking the Jews on film approach to this, he is playing, you know, the father character. He's not. Yeah. Right. I, he's definitely, you know, he's doing the stammer, um, you know, sure. even when he's, you know, I, I, when this film is at its most broad and we'll talk about this it it, it, it is working the least for me um mm. the the and i do think that um oddly it's sort of bookended with these sort of very broad things um so i mean we, we can talk about that but i just think that when he is sort of dialed up and when he is kind of leaning into the um the sort of neuroses of Brian's character, you're definitely seeing um, the Woody Allen stuff. This just in, mm. Stuart Blumberg and Edward Norton went to Yale together. That tracks, yes. Thank you, the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. I think the, the beginning of the movie and the trailer make it seem like it's the daffiest, most screwball-y kind of comedy. Uh, and, it, and I expected it to keep that tone like the whole movie. But then like the first chunk when we're kind of getting introduced, it's real zany. People are passing out from the bris and then getting mm. caught on fire from that smoke. What is that mm. thing called? The smoky, spicy? Yeah, yeah sure. That thing. Yep, that yep. thing. That's a technical <laughs> yep. term. But yeah, all that. I thought that was going to be the tone for the whole of the movie. Um, yeah. You know, much like, you know, something about Mary or, you know, meet the fuckers or whatever, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I do feel like we should catch up our audience on what this film is actually about. So Harry, I'm, I'm very excited to reintroduce the IMDb summary. Harry, take it away. So here it goes. Two friends, a priest and a rabbi, fall in love with the same woman they knew in their youth, but the religious position of both men denies them romance. Oh, I missed you so much, IMDb summary. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, well, I feel like we're at a great place to kind of take a quick break, grab a sip of water, and then come right back, and then we'll kind of di dive into the film 
and uh, discuss it a little bit more. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Phil Iskov to discuss the film, Keeping the Faith. Harry, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. I just wanted to open this discussion and throw out, you know, what was everyone's impressions kind of watching this movie for the first time? I know that was my experience and Daniel, your experience too, but Phil also, you know, rewatching it and particularly in the context of Jews on Film, how did you receive this movie this time around? It's interesting. I, you know, when I saw it in 2000, I remember I saw it with a good friend of mine and, you know, we were both as it seemed like everybody was back at that moment, you know, um, very excited about Edward Norton. He seemed like this, um, you know, generational actor. It felt like you were sort of seeing someone kind of, you know, that, that sort of burst of, of his early days of his career. Um, and, and excited to sort of see him stretch his muscles and do something different. I, I remember at the time, the thing that sort of bumped my friend and I the most was, was kind of the Jenna Elfman of it all. Um, you know, in, in the sense that we were sort of like, you know, had, uh, had it been cast with someone perhaps different, um, there, there would have been sort of an energy there, um, that we were kind of missing this time around. I, I, I actually felt that less. I think Jenna Elfman is, is, is actually quite good in the film. Um, and, and, you know, coming off of Ed TV, which I'm also a fan of, which came out in 99, which we talked about on our podcast, you know, she, she kind of got screwed a little bit by Hollywood. I think that Hollywood, you know, she's not conventional, I guess, in some ways. And I guess she just kind of never really sort of found her groove as a, as a leading actress. Um, but I do think she is quite good in this. And I think the three of them, you know, Norton, Stiller and her, um, that's the juice that makes this film work as far as I'm concerned. I, I actually think the script is fine. Um, I, I think that the script, um, despite the, you know, the sp- stuff we were talking about earlier, which I think it, it handles the religious stuff quite well. Um, the, the actual plotting of the movie, I find a, a little infuriating at times. I am, I am not a, I love romantic comedies just to be clear. And I know that it's a trope that you can never really get away from. Um, but I just fucking hate when miscommunication leads to conflict. I hate when people aren't talking. So, you know, misconceptions are, and all these kind of things that happen. We're just like, I just, I hate the end of act two of every rom-com where someone has to get annoyed about something that really just could have been very easily. uh, Like ultimately what I'm getting at is uh, keeping the information of their relationship from Brian is a thin conflict right which is that like you don't really understand why there's no the man's a priest there's no there is no it doesn't you know what i mean like there's no love triangle to speak of in fact you know uh anna and jake have literally no idea that brian is having this sort of existential crisis so it's just it's it, it, that being the central conflict and drive of the film uh isn't great <laughs> um but the three of them are just so charming and the three of them work really well and you buy their history and their relationship. Um, that, that is what makes this movie work really for me. Um, on the religious side of things, you know, I think that the film does a really good job of, um, not alienating people showing what it is about religion that might be important to 
to people. Um, and on the Judaism side of things, you know, I, I think that, you know, despite some stereotypes that I guess sort of just exist uh, in the world, um, I think that it does a, a, a valiant effort of making um, religion seem fun and somewhat cool, which is a tall order. Oh, yeah. I, I think this movie, I agree with you on a, on a lot of what you were saying. I mean, what you were saying about the kind of conflict of miscommunication and, and the way you worded it really articulated thoughts I've had about a lot of movies that their central tension is, you know, I, I don't I don't want to throw out any strays, but I will because that movie, uh, there were that play Dear Evan Hansen that came out a couple of years ago where, you know, the whole thing is just again, it's this terrible communication that blossoms and it just, it makes me anxious. And everyone's like, but that's like really effective. And I'm like, it could be. And maybe for some people, but I'm watching this just like, just talk, tell them what happened. Yeah. And well, Jerry Van Hansen is, is egregious on a bunch of levels, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we need to invite you back on for an episode about that because I have sure, many yeah. thoughts sure. and it feels like we're on sure. the same page, but back to the movie we're discussing. Yeah. I liked what you were saying at the end about it being, you know, making religion cool, because I think that this movie tries hard to, especially in that opening sequence. And Daniel, you were talking about it a little bit. You said like the zaniness and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm watching that in the beginning and it's just so over the top and yeah. so ridiculous. And it's just totally all over the place. And a couple of times I think I'm watching, I was watching in the beginning and just, I had a couple moments of how could this movie have ever been made and how could that possibly be made now? Partially because of tonally and partly because, you know, rom-coms really aren't made the same way they are, you know, back then. But, you know, even the Jewishness, it did feel like there were a lot of particulars that, at least for me, you know, growing up, you know, adjacent to New York City, I lived there for a couple of years and just recognizing this, you know, the way the community I thought was spotlighted pretty authentically. It, it didn't feel like, you know, Edward Norton was using tokenized Jewishness, you know, to create tension. It felt like this movie really honored and respected both of its religious uh, circumstances. So I, I, I was just, you know, through that first half, I was really excited by, you know, what this movie was and shocked I had never heard of it before. This movie, in my opinion, is entirely sort of encapsulated in, in many ways by the slow-mo version of them wearing sunglasses and leather jackets with Santana smooth in yeah. the needle drop. <laughs> it's perfect. Or just like, the God Jesus, Squad. Like, this is a real <laughs> fucking moment. Like, it's a real time capsule of like, you know, not not to not to you know be a wet blanket, but like pre nine eleven, where like you could kind of you could get away with something like this. Like you, this movie does not come out probably in the two thousands, if we're being honest, right. just because I think that you know there's any number of sort of conflicts and all this kind of stuff that's going on. So you really are sort of sort of seeing this moment of a, a enormously successful song with these two guys attempting to try to make. I mean, don't they, they're the God Squad, I believe, is what they're yeah, called yeah, in the film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jake said we were going to be like those young cops who come on the force and shake things up. You know, the God Squad. So, like, this is just something that is is a real kind of, I mean, time capsule, to say the least. Yeah. I was uh, I was texting Harry about this, that I, I you know, everything what y'all are saying, I was sort of struck, Phil, but what you were saying before about, you know, Brian's a priest, why would it be an issue? I And to, to bring up yet another movie... I feel like this is a religious version of like a chasing Amy in some way where it just sure. takes the right guy to like turn a lesbian straight. And so like with Father Brian, it's like it just takes the right girl to get like a celibate priest to like break his vows and like desire a woman, which I thought was just like, you know, it doesn't do such a great service to this person's. But it, it, it reflects the 
reality of, of humankind. But I also thought that it was like a very horny movie overall. And this is something we can kind of dive into. It, like is, it is. Lots of kissing between friends on the mouth, like just an excessive yeah. amount. Every cab yeah. ride that they split up, they're just like mouth kissing. And then they're at the dinner and they're like fake kissing. And then there's just talks about sex on the bridge. And then. Yeah. So have you ever? Yes. Had sex? Yes. 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 With women? Yes. So you're not gay? Oh, no, no. Are you sure? Yes. But even if I was, the rules are the same. Okay. Right. Do you miss it? Nope. Are you tempted? No. Nah. Oh, admit it. If they changed the rules, you'd be psyched. I don't even think about it. And like this whole, like, you know, uh, Rabbi Jake, played by Ben Stiller and Anne, uh, Anna, like they're having a lot of implied sex throughout the entire movie, like just an inordinate amount. And for a PG-13 touchstone film in the 2000s, it's just a very unique choice. To kind yeah, of, you know, I guess I didn't really... You're you're absolutely right. I guess I didn't really kind of. I did clock, you know, some of the. I mean, I guess sexual tension is maybe the wrong word, but like it definitely goes there at times, especially like that the the um, the fantasy that Brian has, yeah, um, of of Anna. Um, it does feel a little bit though a very sort of, because these three people were friends when they were quite young and sort of impressionable and, you know, knee deep in puberty and all of that. I do think that that's a little bit in the mix too, right? Mm -hmm. When like you're, yeah. when, when you are friends with a girl or a guy, when there's sort of that sexual activation going on, you kind of, it blurs the lines a little bit as you get older. I mm -hmm. think that that's, perhaps what we're tapping into a little bit, but, but you're, you're not wrong in the sense of like, um, you know, PG movie 2000 from, from Disney. Although, I mean, that's a whole other discussion to be had. It's just sort of like, you know, touchstone Disney, all of that Miramax, all that kind of stuff in the late nineties, early two thousands, Disney wasn't as, you know, right. You know, dictatorial, let's just sure. say. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. What's, what's really interesting, you know, you're talking about how, and I think you're totally correct that when they are this threesome, right, when they are this group of friends, they are in like the, you know, the height of puberty and they're finally, you know, finding each other. They even make a mention of that, I think, in one of Edward Norton's, you know, uh, voiceover. He talks about how, you know, maybe she was ahead of them, but they were kind of yeah, getting yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think the movie actually does, now I'm realizing, is it kind of suggests that all of them were stunted or, you know, repressed sexually kind of between then and now, you know, obviously right. Brian, okay. you know, more so than yeah, anyone. Yeah. Cause he's, you know, obviously he's, he's a priest, sure. but you kind of see it with Jake. You see the failed dates that he goes on and it's clearly implied that, you know, the first woman he's going on a date on is trying to bring him up to, to her room and he, he doesn't want to go. And you can imagine it's probably gone similarly. And I think with the Anna character, they make the case that she's this workaholic that she hasn't right. had time for any relationship. So yeah. it's interesting. This movie, I think is suggesting, you know, they're all picking up kind of exactly where they left off. And that's maybe why it gets so sexual so quickly. Like you're saying. I Daniel. agree. It definitely, excuse me. It definitely feels like there's an arrested development going on to some degree mm -hmm. or another. Um, and, and, and I do think that like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't know that this film is necessarily trying to do this, but I, you know, there is an asexual component to religion. Um, you know, there is this sort of, um, the, the, I mean, <laughs> there, there is something very odd in my opinion about celibacy. I, I, I think that it is a, 
an uh, an odd choice. Um, it, it's also um, it hinders the ability to I don't know procreate and continue to have more people within your religion, which I find sort of contradictory or at least counterintuitive at the very least. So there is that sort of stuff. So, but if you take that out of the equation, I do think that that people very much separate religion and sex. I mean, those are two things that do not co-mingle really. Um, and I think this movie is maybe trying to sort of assuage some of those notions a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I think that clearly Jake's character, I don't know that he's necessarily sexually repressed so much as he's inundated with a very specific type of woman that perhaps he's just not particularly attracted to sexually. Um, so that could definitely be a part yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, but I, but it, yeah, I mean, I guess there is sort of a, a, a sexual subtext to this movie that is, that is compelling and interesting. Right. I think the camera does a pretty good job during that one scene where like Jake's coming out of services after that uh, choir scene, the Ain Kelohenu choir scene and all the, the Jewish mothers and their Jewish daughters and he's just like spinning mm-hmm. around and it's a mm-hmm. bit chaotic. This is my daughter, Ruthie. She's in college. She's going to be a physiotherapist. What a shame I'm making her. Look at this whole rep. You're so wonderful. You know my It is. It is a very certain type of uh, Jewish women, woman who's being kind of uh, introduced to him and he like gets very overwhelmed by it all. And, and you know, the casting of Lisa Adelstein yeah. is, is like the most cliche. Like she is literally the go-to for like hot Jewish actress, right? Like, it's like, if you need there to be some, it seems to always be her. Um, so of course she's playing this role and she does it great. I mean, I don't, I don't have any problems with Lisa Edelstein, but there is something very sort of like, when you look at the two women that are cast as sort of the, 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 the ideal quote unquote mm-hmm. of like aesthetics, yeah. there is sort of this, there's a little bit of a cliche there, but you know, whatever. Lisa Edelstein, she's the fitness, uh, the first girlfriend. And then she's the first girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. And then later on, I'll, I'll get the I believe name. her name is Rena something or other. Rena Sofer maybe. Yeah. I remember it because I like watching the credits, which, by the way, were like done in New Yorker font, which was so nice, That's really nice. nice opening. A long credit sequence, an long, unnecessarily oh, yeah. long credit sequence. Yeah. yeah, a little <laughs> indulgent, but I was I was there for it. Nice helicopter <laughs> shots of New York City. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good. I mean, overall, the use of the helicopter shot to establish mm-hmm. the different stuff. There was, I, I told my wife Yaffa, like, you know, it was made in 2000, so I was keeping an eye out for a World Trade Center shot, and we did get one as we're kind of getting introduced to Anna's, yeah. like, workplace, which was, yeah. was cool to see, you know? I did want to, like, you were talking about Lisa Edelstein. I feel like there's a, a great supporting cast overall in this mm. film. The casting, you know, we have Milos Forman as Father Havel, which is, um, so uh, you know— Almost um, steals the movie, as far as I'm concerned. He's, like, such a good— um, mentor to Brian because something that I noted in in this is that we get a lot of backstory about Jake and his family and what's going on with him but for Brian like I felt like his family or his backstory other than his relationship to Anna is Anna or Anna 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 Anna. yeah his relationship to Anna and and Jake is like that's the only sort of context we have but we don't have a lot of context for him Um, his stuff was great we have Eli Wallach and Bancroft um Holly Chopra, you know, the bartender played by Brian George. He was great. Um, we have Debbie, which I want to talk about for a second, our coded Jewish secretary for Anna. Uh, 
David Wayne is in there as Steve Posner. He's like a, he's a congregant, which I thought that was neat. And then uh, Ken Lung as uh, Don, the karaoke salesman. I feel like it's a really nice, well-rounded supporting cast and it really builds the world a little bit um, so that it's not just the three because it presents a lot of nice opportunities to have sort of comedic scenes that sort of build out the story a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, well, you just mentioned two things, right? You said it adds comedic scenes, but it also builds out the story a little bit. And mm-hmm. as you were going through that list, I was yeah. thinking about, and maybe these are just some of the director choices of the movie, uh-huh. but all these characters you're listing, I was thinking of the scenes they're in. This movie just throws in so many random scenes that uh-huh. really don't, I think, build the plot. And maybe it's because the plot was too thin to support a two-hour movie. So it's just like, yeah. let's do this karaoke sales you know, <laughs> meeting. And it, it's, it's a great scene. It was one of my favorites. It's so funny. But there's just all these little threads that are just so ridiculous. I mean, the one that I have to shout out because this made me laugh more than anything in the movie is when they're just have the trio's just having a conversation and Edward Norton's character, Brian, he just starts talking in the Rain Man voice. He's doing like an impression of the Rain Man character. What do we know about this girl? Rachel Rose, 29 years old, Columbia School of Journalism, Middle East affairs expert. Perfect, Middle Eastern. She can order an Arabic, give Mm. her a chance to shine. What's a good place? Delphine's, definitely Delphine's. Four stars, New York Times, definitely Delphine's. Need a reservation. And he's, he does it for like 30 seconds and I'm sitting there like, is he going to even acknowledge this in the movie or is he just, because he just goes into it. I'm like, is he just yeah. doing Rain Man? And I, I honestly just think Edward Norton probably felt like he had a really good impression and yeah. just wanted it, like it was his movie, right? So he can throw it in. Absolutely. And, think, and there's like an aside, Jake goes like, hey, stop doing Rain Man. So at least yeah. the movie didn't just like randomly throw it in, but there's just a lot of weird choices with this movie, just inserting things into it, I think. You kind of breezed past something that I think is worth noting. Uh, this movie shouldn't be two hours long. Uh, uh, yeah, th- yeah, this, yeah. This, this movie, it, it really should be closer to 90 to 100 minutes. And I think that um, it's it's padded with things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as great as Ken Lung is, you just don't need the scene. Um, you know, the yeah. scene being basically they're going to go buy a karaoke. Ken Lung is doing a, a, a you know, a, a stereotypical Asian accent Hockey, yeah. and then drops it. And the joke is that, um, and, and I mean, right. like it's, it's a, you know, two, three minute, four minute scene that, you know, doesn't move the story forward. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't need to have context of them buying a karaoke machine for their community <laughs> service center. Not, no. And I, I would also argue that the community center storyline kind of just disappears. Right. Like it's kind of there, but like it doesn't really pay off. And it's really just kind of an excuse to sort of kind of build towards something, but you're just not really feeling it. So like there's, you know, and, and listen, I think Anne, ba- Anne Bancroft is wonderful in this film. I think she absolutely deserves to be there. Um, but again, like the brother storyline, which what is that essentially that? there was yeah. this, this estrangement between the brother and her is kind of there, but not really there. So it's like, there's, there's, there's things that if they had committed to things a little bit more effectively, I think that A, the movie would have been stronger for it, but B, it would have just been streamlined a little bit more. Cause like you really start to feel it's running time. This movie's actually two hours and 10 minutes. So like, oh, you're just sort so of like. It's, it's funny cause you mentioned, you know, Jake's brother scene, right? His kind of falling out with his mother. And I, you can see the threads of why that's there. It's supposed to introduce sure, this threat sure. of, yes, well, if yes, his mother finds yes. out about his relationship with a non-Jew, totally, you know, it's totally. going to end poorly. But yep. then the movie just resolves it. Like the mother kind of, right? She just figures out what's going on and she's okay with it. And yeah, she kind of apologized. There's this theme we could talk about, you sure. know, the Jewish concept of tshuva. You know, she kind of is faced with the same situation and she, you sure. know, redeems herself. And, and sure, 
but this movie works perfectly without it. And, you know, while we're talking about, you know, the running line, the running Please. time, because I agree that this movie could have been 90 minutes. It's just, it's a sad state of the industry. I think we're in where it just feels like we're going to start looking back in a couple of years and saying, remember when movies were two hours and 10 minutes, because <laughs> the amount of three hour movies that were like nominated for best picture in the Oscars Fable this year, miss. right? <laughs> Fable hey, Avatar, Avatar was I mean, I, two and a half hours long. <laughs> I, I'll say this. I don't Please. disagree with you. You know, it's funny. Last night I went to see um, a screening of uh, Kelly Reichert's new film, um, Showing Up, um, mm-hmm. uh, which was wonderful and is 100 minutes long. Um, I think Kelly Reichert understands uh, that her movies need to be 90 very minutes. And I, I, very, very, but just the, the pacing and, and the deliberateness of what she's doing. Um, but all that being said, I was walking with my friend afterwards, who's a filmmaker. And we were talking about how, you know, if you, if you ask Paul Thomas Anderson or Martin Scorsese or any of these filmmakers that, you know, these auteurs that we love, they're always like 90 minute movies are the greatest. And it's like, yeah, they love the idea as a, as a viewer of a 90 minute movie, but as a filmmaker, they're going to make movies that are as long as they fucking want them to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of the, the push and pull of, of running time as an industry right now, which is truth be told you know, I saw Avatar Way of Water twice in theaters uh, and the running time didn't feel arduous to me because I do think that that James Cameron understands how to pace a movie. Mm-hmm. The problem is there are filmmakers that just don't know how to pace a film, right? If, if the film is paced properly, the running time ultimately doesn't matter. It's just ultimately if you're feeling the running time, it's not working. Right. And I think that this film, you know, I think we all agree uh, there, it's not even that there's air in this movie. You know what I mean, and, and by that I mean, you know, uh, feeling as though that the scenes run too long, or that it, it's really not that. It's that there are scenes that could be exercised from the film entirely um, that just don't necessarily. But again, to come back to what you were saying about Ruth, about the mother and the conflict with Ethan and all that kind of stuff. I think the son's name is Ethan. Um, very strange for her to ask Anna, "Is my son a good kisser?" That is a very strange way of trying to find out if Anna is dating Jake. And we do not see that conversation for obvious reasons, but I kind of missed the conversation. Like there's a part of me that was like, if I got to see that conversation with Anna and the mom, oh yeah, I think it would have gone a long way to bolstering both of their characters and us having a sense of where both of those characters are coming from. And I think there's a really lovely scene that could have been done there, but instead they just decided to cut to the quick with this weird line and then cut out of the scene. And I think that that's an unfortunate choice. Yeah. I mean, you see that, you see the end result of the conversation where they're both in tears and they're hugging and it's, you know, everybody's happy that they had this heart to heart, but like, I totally agree. It seems like something that was a missed opportunity. I do feel like maybe Edward Norton f- felt like this was his like auteur rom-com. Like I'm going to do it different. So I'm going to make it a little bit longer, sure. and a little bit sure. different and cram everything in there. But I wanted to step back to kind of like our original, I think in the opening sequence, we have this, this sort of cut between Rabbi Jake's sermon played by Ben Stiller. And then we have uh, Father Brian in his church and they're discussing a lot of things. And they talk about this idea of faith versus religion, right? And so I wanted to sort of posit, which is not like a fully stretched thing. So we don't have to get on the stretch train quite yet. But I, this idea of like, everyone has a religion in the movie. Um, you know, for Jake, it's Judaism. For Father Brian, it's Christianity. And 
for Lisa Edelstein's character, it's fitness. You know, they open up her her books, and then you have her crunch VHS tapes. It certainly dates the film a little bit. And then, uh, you know, Anna has her, you know, her holy Bible is her cell phone and her work, and that's kind of her religion. But I wanted to kind of throw this out there and see what y'all thought about this idea of having faith in religion um, depicted in the film. You know, I, I think that this, I mean, listen, it's in the title. Um, and, and I do think that um, it does a really nice job. There are two scenes in particular that kind of, I feel like encapsulate what you're, what you're kind of driving at. The first is the scene when Anna and Jake break up and basically she explains to him that, you know, religion doesn't come easily to people, um, but that he needs to have more faith in people. Your faith is a huge part of what I love about you, but you have to have some patience for the fact that it doesn't come as easily for most people as it does for you. And you know what? You are never going to find the kind of relationship that I know you want and you are never going to be the kind of spiritual leader that you could be until you learn to put a little faith in other people. And that ultimately kind of tees up his sermon that he gives before sort of the the, the question of whether or not he's going to continue being a rabbi at this, you know, at the synagogue, mm-hmm. um, where he speaks of, um, I, I wrote it down here, uh, where he sort of speaks of the complexities of faith, love, and forgiveness, and mm-hmm. sort of how those aren't things that are owned by religion, that those are human qualities as a species. Um, and I think that that, those notions, um, I think are the, the the strongest thing that this movie is essentially trying to kind of put out into the world, which is that um, religion does not own the idea of love and faith and forgiveness. And um, I, I think that that universality, um, I think is, not just lovely, but important and something that I don't think we talk about enough. I think that, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an atheist by any means, but I'm also, as I mentioned, I'm not a deeply religious person either. And I, and I do think that organized religion um, continues to be weaponized in ways that, that are um, not productive. Let's just say that. And I, I, would, I would love for us to sort of see more of that embracing of the idea of faith as opposed to the idea of um, religion. Yeah. What that's worth. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of religion bringing people together as opposed to sure. like, and sure. celebrating our differences in a way that we can do that together rather than, yes, yes. you know, so, you know, rather than like put point out our differences and like separate because of that, yeah. it is um, ultimately, I feel like a lot of people are, the human element can both help and hurt that. And like yeah. people often use religion, like you said, to weaponize things, which makes it a little bit tricky, but that is, you know, ultimately the, well, the human I, condition. It's tricky. Yeah. No, for sure. And I, and I do think that, you know, as a species, we are tribal uh, and we look for our own kind, quote unquote, like, yeah. mm-hmm. and that doesn't, that doesn't mean religion um, necessarily. I mean, I, I am friends with lots of people, um, you know, if I had a tribe, it's more the industry that I work in and movies and film as opposed to any sort of religious belief system. But I completely agree with you that like we are drawn towards people that that have a commonality, right? That that think in a similar way and have similar passions and loves and what have you. Um, and I think that that sense of community and that sort of commonality of belief, um, I think is one of the most wonderful things about 
the human race. So I, I, I don't have any problems with that. Obviously I think that that's wonderful. I, I think it's to your point, it's when we start highlighting our differences um, and, and, and weaponizing that stuff, which you can see happening you know, politically on the right in this country um, and trying to sort of, um, for lack of a better term, segregate people and force them into boxes based on um, either religious beliefs or race or anything like that. That's when you get into, you know, really dark territory. And I, I think that this film is doing a good job of staying away from all that. I, I think the word that you threw out there when you were talking about community really is the buzzword of this movie because, yeah, you know, the totally. ending, you know, obviously yes, is yes. them coming together to build a community center, right? And it's this interfaith community center. And I'm, I was trying to track this throughout the movie, but it yeah. really is a question Good of luck. how, yeah, exactly, <laughs> but just like how the, how everyone defines their relationship with their community and what that looks like. And that's why one of the, my favorite tensions, I think in the movie that we spoke about earlier, that question of tradition versus faith and moving forward, yep. you know, when, when we were talking about that scene and let's definitely loop it in here, but mm-hmm. when the, uh, the kind of head of the board is telling him, he's like, do you have to appreciate the fact that a lot of people come here for a sense of continuity? It's not just the board. It, it's your congregation, Jake. Mrs. Mrs. Katz likes to sing the Ain't Kalohena the way she knows it. Tradition is not old habit. Or it, I, it, no, it's comforting to people. Okay, but I'm not interested in babysitting Mrs. Katz. I, I want to I wanna push people to grow and expand. Otherwise, what are we doing? I know, I know, I know. But you have to be patient with them. And I love the idea of outreach yes. and pulling in this interfaith and bringing people into the community. But... You have to risk, you are risking, you know, the the kind of togetherness of the community that you have. And that's why, right. you know, in that opening montage, he's, you mentioned the karaoke scene, which we didn't, I don't think we spent enough time before on before because, you know, he brings in this huge, this, he brings in this black choir to come into the back of the synagogue and do this really like upbeat version of that, you know, we'll definitely play of, uh, of Ankelo Kainu. soon a song that I'm familiar with. And I think in this scene, the guy, the, the head of the board talks about, he says, you know, he, he mentions one of the members in the community and he says, she just wants to say Ankele Kainu the way that she grew up with it. This is comforting to her. This is community. And the movie, you know, when it wraps up, I think towards the end of it, right? Obviously they do come together for a community center, but he also is allowed to be the rabbi because he kind of reaches out to his community and there is this moment with the surprise reveal that comes at the end where we discover that, you know, Anna, who had been taking these, you know, classes the entire movie, and it turns out uh-huh. she was taking classes with the rabbi. And I, the read I got was that this was kind of maybe towards uh, conversion, conversion, maybe. It That's was kind of in that. Yeah. So in some ways, I think that, like, mud, like I guess it uh, diminishes maybe the choice to say we're going to embrace outwards. Ah. But in some ways, it closes the loop and says... You can almost have it both ways. You can have your interfaith, but also yeah. oh, you're gonna fix your community. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that punchline. But that definitely is the question I, throughout. I, you know, it's it's funny you say that because I remembered the sort of hint of conversion at the end um, from when I saw it back in 2000, and um, so I was kind of watching it, being like, where, you know, how does this get looped in? And there's some hints at it, and there's some stuff that you know throughout the film um if you're looking for it that you can see it and i and i agree with you they're trying to have their cake and eat it too at the end and i and i think that that's i i i get it i i, I feel like first and foremost they're not explicitly saying right that she's i was converting. gonna say that yeah 
so I think that that is it. It's a way of trying to round the edges off of it, so it doesn't seem like they're they're that she has capitulated and sort of you know uh, lost her own identity. Um, at the same time, I think they're trying to be like, but she might. <laughs> like I, I think that there's a little bit of like they they want you to feel that sort of. Um, at the very least, you want them to see that she's trying to find a bridge, right? And that she wants to find some sort of a way um, to bring them closer. So in that regard, I'm all for it, right? Like, I, I'm all for Jake and Anna finding, a, you know, a way navigating these waters together. And, and that's the, I think that's the important detail, is that these two want to find a way to work. I want to also just circle back very quickly to the sure. scene you're talking about with Eli Wallach when he's talking about, you know, tradition. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that, that, you know, something that occurred to me as I was watching this is he has a line where he says tradition is comforting to people. And, and I, I think that there is something kind of um, there's not a paradox, but there is this weird kind of thing about tradition, right? Which is that, this idea, and again, you know, my grandparents were, were Holocaust survivors and my grandparents, um, you know, were religious people, but they weren't uh, into the idea of indoctrination. They weren't into the idea of trying to sort of force their children to be religious. Um, but it was clear to them that this tradition was a connection to the past and a connection to, to their ancestors and that 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 was important to them. Right. And, and the sort of perpetuating of um, traditions keeps the past alive. Right. And I think that's important and I don't mean to suggest that it's not, but it also does feel like you're treading into the waters of kind of, um, of, of the addiction to nostalgia as well. Mm. Right. The, the addiction to the past. And I think that, you know, this movie tries to tread that line and I think does it pretty well in terms of Jake has a reverence for the past, but also wants to find a way to move forward and to find a way to make um, his sermons and his synagogue uh, as inviting to the youth as possible and, and trying to kind of, you know, be progressive too. Um, but I do find that push and pull of tradition versus an addiction um, to the past is uh you know, is interesting. I'm not sure that it's fully unpacked in this, but I think it's an interesting notion. I was going to jump in with a very specific example of how I related to both the Ankelohenu scene and what you're saying, Phil. Sure. So like Friday night uh, services, is, is, it's called Kabbalah Shabbat, like when you sing a lot of songs and there's an opportunity to bring in melodies for those songs. And oftentimes uh, there's usually like, you know, you do it in the style of a rabbi called Shlomo Karlebach, or you'll have like other melodies that came from like the old country. And then oftentimes, you know, with a younger uh, cantor, a chazan, they'll bring in like a pop song of the moment and kind of reuse that melody uh, to kind of get people on board and be like, oh, sure. you know, like a lot of songs, um, a lot of Jewish songs are sung to this tune of like, you are my sunshine to give an example of like, at one point that was a newer song and that was brought into this. I was going to say, it's not, not a, exactly yeah. new anymore, but I'm true. very old. <laughs> yeah. I'm b- born in the 1800s, but I, I feel <laughs> like a lot of the times at one point that was sort of a newer song for Americans, Amer- Jews who came to America. And so mm-hmm. to sing a song in that tune, I feel like that's kind of a, maybe a clumsy analog to what you're talking about of like, 
you know, there'll be, there'll be, I feel like there was some song where I was just like, maybe it was like a Lady Gaga pop song or some sort of like mm-hmm. Beyonce tune that was used in, in prayer in Dominating and, and some people love it because they can connect to it and they know the tune and other people are so alienated by it. So I kind of related yeah. to that, that, you know, sort of division in the, in the community. Um, and it's really, you know, the pop songs are not for everyone, but it's just kind of, uh, you know, no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely hear that. I, I mean, listen, the, the, religion is, you know, uh, it's a hard sell. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hard sell for, for a bunch of reasons, right? Um, it, it, it requires, uh, dedication. It requires you to be sitting in an uncomfortable seat for extended periods of time while people tell you about all the things you're doing wrong with your life. Um, it's, it is, it's a tough mm-hmm. pill to swallow. Um, you know, but, uh, <laughs> our, our absolutely sort of crippling fear of death leads us to a place of, um, maybe there's something after this. And if there is, I really don't want to fuck this up. So I'm putting all my chips on a certain possibility that there might be something after this. Um, and that's a powerful notion, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's, it's, and it has, you know, been weaponized by millions of people around the world um, and has been a money-making scheme in a lot of ways for a very long time Um, for all these reasons, right? Because it taps into our insecurities as people um, and, and our desire to want to be better, right? Like I think that that's really ultimately what it all comes down to, which is the desire to hopefully be a better person. And I think that our three leads in this film want to be better people. Absolutely. Um, and uh, don't really know how to do that. And I think that through this love triangle and through this kind of somewhat bumpy narrative, um, find their way there. So I yeah. think that that's, that's a nice notion. If you could stick around after the podcast, Phil, we'll have you take a brief personality quiz so we can make sure that we get you signed up for some classes. How's that? <laughs> uh, okay. Harry? <laughs> I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to talk about Brian a little bit. You know, we haven't mm-hmm. spoken about him as much, you know, for sure, obvious sure. reasons, sure. as Jews on film, but a lot of what you were just talking about and that specific, you know, particular question about sure. faith and how that stands against, you know, questions of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the kind of motivator for faith. I think he probably deals with it, at least on an individual level. You know, the rest of the movie, I think we're looking on this very communal tension between progressiveness sure. and tradition, right. but Brian's character, I think more so that anyone has this individual crisis of faith where he starts to question, you know, why did I sign up for this, right? The movie makes a really good point, I think, to say that in the beginning, he talks about how he felt from a young age he was compelled to do this. It was this obligation for him. And I think one of the most telling scenes of the movie is, and it's after he's had that, you know, sequence with Anna where he's kissing her and he's kind of saying he's going to give it all up. And then he goes and meets with the the head priest that's uh, at his church. And he tells him, like, did you ever have any moments? You know, I feel like this is my obligation. And then the head priest, and, you know, we'll get this in here. But he talks about how... You cannot make a real commitment unless you accept that this is a choice which you keep making again and again and again. I've been a priest over 40 years, and I fell in love at least once every decade. 
You know, there's right. no sense of obligation. It's this like constant battle. And just to show kind of the other facet, I think on an individual level, I mean, as you know, again, as a, a Jewish practicer, my or religious practitioner, sure. practicer uh, myself, that was uh, that was where I definitely felt like you know connected. Even even though obviously he's not representing the sure. Jewish character in the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know, man. I think this <laughs> celibacy thing is nonsense. I, 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 I'm I, not I changing my lifestyle, but no, yeah. It's. I mean, I just. It feels so counterintuitive to me. I, I don't. I, I. I. As I mentioned earlier, even taking the 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 you know propagation out of it and the idea of like perpetuating your your, um, you know your uh, headspace or whatever the case might be. I. I, I just think. I mean, it's clearly led to some serious problems within the church, um, yes. as yes. we can see on all of these horrible, you know, mm-hmm. molestation charges and any number of child abuse and all the various things that exist there. Uh, it does feel like there's a direct line that you could draw between these things. All that being said, yeah, I, I do feel like um, the scene that Brian has with Anna where she's asking about the sex thing, right? And he's like, oh, is this the sex talk? Yeah. On the bridge. And he yeah. talks about the sacrifice, right? And he talks about how, um, you know, it, it's not something he thinks about and it's not something that, I mean, I, clearly is something he thinks about. And I'm assuming that, uh, you know, um, it's a problem and it's a thing that I imagine nuns and priests think about and deal with. But the idea of the sacrifice and the idea of, um, of trying to sort of uh, prove yourself to your God, I is an interesting notion. Um, and I think that they try through that scene to tap into that with Brian's character. Um, and certainly through his arc. Um, I do think it is a, uh, I do think it's interesting. I think this film traffics in a lot of interesting ideas that it doesn't totally land, but like you watch it and you're just like, this is interesting. Like, I, I, I think that, you know, um, in, in an attempt to not seem like a quote unquote religious movie, they don't do the deep dive and they kind of skirt along these things. But I, I also just commend the film for even just like throwing these ideas out into the world, yeah. if, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I think you you kind of nailed it exactly. I mean, the rom-com of, of this whole movie kind of comes back to it when everything is resolved very easily. And even yeah. in that scene, you yeah. know, like as you were as you were asking those questions about, you know, celibacy, how does that work? And I was just thinking, this is a movie that is not concerned with providing an answer for that. It is really cool that, you know, a movie like this exists. And I really yeah. did enjoy getting to see, you know, these questions of faith that, especially nowadays, I really can't point to a movie that unless the entire text of the movie is a challenge of faith, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, Martin Scorsese's uh, Silence that he put out a couple years where that is a literal three hour movie about, you know, confronting your own faith. You don't really see these questions, which for some people are more practical than others, you know, things that they have to deal with kind of sprinkled into your rom-com. And it was really cool that the movie did that, but totally can't expect it to go all the way. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's funny as we've been, so on our podcast, you know, we, we come into the, into the podcast with a rating and then we do a rating on the way out Okay. in, you know, in the notions, basically the idea being, uh, has this conversation in any way changed how you feel about the movie? And, you know, I, I, that 
thing that we just kind of hit on the idea that like, it's not even about, you know, the, the, the final product. Sometimes it's about the trying. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the fact that this movie exists and that it's throwing these ideas out into the world really does make me like it that much more. Um, you know, whether you stick the landing is, is, you know, obviously up to debate and we've obviously been discussing that, but I just, I really do find myself kind of being like, you know, could you come close to doing this today? I, I, I don't know. I, I mm -hmm. think that, you know, um, listen, uh, God's the oldest IP. Um, so <laughs> I, I do think that, love it. Love it. <laughs> I do think that on some level, uh, the, the intellectual property of this, um, is, is evergreen. Um, so I do think that, you know, you could try to do something like this again. I think with the right people, the right filmmakers, the what have you, um, you know, I, I, I continually try to sort of crack this notion of doing a show about a rabbi in some way or another, because I do mm -hmm. think that, that rabbis are, I mean, listen, I'm Jewish, so they're more interesting to me than priests are, but I also just feel like the fact that, that rabbis can exist with us commoners mm -hmm. in a way that feels a little bit more akin, I think is just interesting. Um, so that's something that I, that I would like to explore sometime anyway. Well, I feel like, you know, I, I, I was, uh, thinking about doing like a modern day version of these heroes of the Torah cards, because I do feel like what oh, Judaism no. looks like today versus what it looked like in 2000 or even before then, there's so many different voices of Judaism nowadays. And I feel like between social media and the internet, people can get their ideas out um, via video or Instagram or Twitter or their own blogs and things like that. And I think it's, it's beautiful that there's such a rich tapestry of, of Jewish um, ideas and thoughts out there. I wanted to jump back just for one second because yeah. we were talking about choice and obligation. And I thought that in addition to talking about like Brian's faith and his celibacy and things like that, there's also the Jake side of things where he feels like he has this obligation to continue his lineage and sort of – I like this – They, you know, ultimately – it does come back in some way where like Anna asks, or I think it's Anna who asks like, what do you want? Not what does your mom want? What does your community want? Yep. But what do you want for yourself? And I think, you know, they, like you said, they take a lot of big swings. They try to do some things and some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. But I thought this idea of figuring out, doing some self-reflection in meditation, figuring out as a person, as a human individual, not as like a community leader or a Jew, mm -hmm. but as, as a Rabbi Jake himself, you know, what's, what speaks to you? What, what does your heart say? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that, I mean, this is sort of, this is also the film in a nutshell too. I mean, that, that, that the romance at the center of this film is that, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, we are, uh, foolish to try to fight that. Um, or at the very least it, it just, you know, might very well lead to just uh, unhappiness. You know, right. I, I think that, you know, as far as we know, life is very short. Um, it, it, it flies by. And um, I think that we should all, you know, live our best lives and, and, and happiness is, is so much more. What, what is happiness first and foremost, but like, just, you know, that, that you should, you, you know, you got you to chase your heart. You got to go with what 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 you think um, 
is going to make you happiest. And, and for a lot of people that is religion. And I don't, I'm certainly not suggesting otherwise. I'm not trying to sit here and say, you know, that, that, um, you know, you do you. I mean, my, my, uh, you know, my stepfather, uh, grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting, met my, met my, my mother, uh, fell in love with her, fell in love with my grandparents, converted to Judaism and is very happy. Um, as you know, converts more Jewish than most. Uh, it feels like, you know, the converts are always the ones that you have to be like, all right, you know, slow your roll. But <laughs> I do think that, um, it makes him happy and, and, right. and, and it gives him a compass and it makes him feel, uh, better about his life. Who, who am I to say that that's a wrong decision? That's, that's, it's his life. And, you know, when he tries to, you know, uh, push me in certain directions, I tell him thank you, but no thank you. But that's, you know, that's, that's his choice. I feel like maybe in our remake, we'll, we'll get a nice convert <laughs> character, throw it in there to kind of modernize. Well, that was, yeah, it. that was a little surprising to me that they didn't have like someone that felt a little bit more on the, on the converted side of things, but you know, maybe Anna in, in the sequel. Sure. You know, the sequel, the fate yes. too. But thank yeah. you. That was, kid. A, that was a really like a nice way to kind of wrap it, wrap things up. And, uh, you know, talking about, the discussion of our of our plot now, I wanted to say let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll kind of give our ratings and Harry will introduce a few categories for us um, to kind of frame the film and give it a rating on the scale of one to five Jewish stars of David. So with that, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Phil Iskov to give a rating to the film Keeping the Faith. Harry, I'll kick it over to you. Sure. So uh, now let's just get into our new rapid fire categories, throwing out different ideas about the movie. And uh, I wanted to get us started with what I think is going to be a tough one this week. There's a lot of good contenders for this, but what is the most Jewish scene of the movie? And uh, interpret that however you'd like to. Oh, boy. Um, I, you know... <laughs> It, there, obviously, there's lots of scenes in synagogues. Like, there's overtly Jewish yeah. scenes. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's... I, I would be more tempted to say that, like, you know, the the most kind of... I'm going to say the most Jewish scenes to me. I don't spend a lot of time in synagogues. So, for me personally, Love that, that. Would, would, would not necessarily apply. Um, you know, the, the the most Jewish scenes to me are the, are the Ruth scenes, the sort of Ruth and Jake scenes or the mm -hmm. Ruth and, 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 you know, our main characters, Brian and Anna as well. But like, you know, she felt like, you know, a Jewish mother that I've seen, not my Jewish mother necessarily, but you know, a, a Jewish mother that felt believable. Um, you know, I, I thought that Holland Taylor, who's in this film, you know, briefly, not really much of a character doesn't really radiate, Jewish to me personally, um, no offense. Um, whereas like Anne Bancroft's character, you know, in comparison to like, I love Anne Bancroft. She's great in Home for the Holidays, which is a not Jewish movie. I mean, it's all about Thanksgiving. And, but she just really kind of radiated this really kind of loveliness. So like, I think about the scene that she has with Jake in the hospital. I think about the scenes that she has with Jake in general, um, that tapped into a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, a, a reform Jewish person kind of grappling with their, with their Judaism and, and, and how to parent that felt resonant for me. Harry, how about yourself? 
I, uh, I like the way that you went about that. You know, what was the most Jewish to you? Because on one end, I was thinking, you know, what is the most text Jewish, like identifiably yeah. particular? And uh, I was thinking about the synagogue scenes. And I do want to shout out, you know, towards the end, they have the the one that takes place clearly on Yom Kippur, right? That's right before Jake gives his big kind of, you know, end of the rom-com. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness. Although it's not necessarily uh, an address to the girl. It is a little bit more about sure. his own faith, which I thought was great. But before that, you get this scene, you know, with this cantor that's kind of reciting some of the Yom Kippur prayers and A lot of them, you know, speaking to my own experience, were very familiar. And it was pretty obvious to me that they must have hired someone who's done this before because they had the tone and the voice. So shout out to that scene just on surface level, a lot of Jewishness, but also to be a little bit, you know, personal and maybe even a little bit edgy by choosing, you know, a, a scene without any Jewishness in the Jewish movie as the most Jewish scene. But I mentioned this earlier, that conversation that Brian has with the uh, other priests just about his own personal, you know, sacrifices and choosing and that kind of tension of faith, which to me was really cool. It was a really cool, personal, connected, and I think, you know, religious scene in a way that it can be applied to any, but certainly, you know, people of Jewish faith and practice are struggling with some of the same things. So I'll give my little uh, edgy answer and say, you know, the, uh, the priest scene. I okay. want to just very briefly piggyback on that just for a quick second and just sure. really highlight Milos Forman in this movie, uh, who doesn't act. I believe it's his only performance as an actor. He's obviously a, a tremendous, oh, maybe he has another one. He okay. was in Heartburn. Uh, we just oh, reviewed okay. Heartburn a couple episodes. The other he, oh, okay. He played, um, he played the the sort of raunchy husband, the foreign husband who kind of was like off color doing all these off color oh, jokes. I've, I've never seen Heartburn. I should oh, watch Heartburn. It's I great. hear it's great. I need it's to great. watch it. Then check out our um, episode. It's a, I will, it is a blind spot for me. Um, but having him in this film, obviously he directed Edward Norton in People vs. Larry Flint. Um, you know, Amadeus, one of the Kuznets, tremendous filmmaker. Um, and so comfortable in front of the camera, which is relatively rare. I mean, there's a handful of, you know, Scorsese pops up from time to time and like Redford and like, there's all sorts of like reference an actor before he was a director, but still like when, or Spike Jones, for instance, like when these, these, directors pop up as actors, it can be distracting sometimes. Um, But he's so comfortable in front of the camera. He's got that great joke about, I was dreaming about my mother's sausages, which is fantastic when he's woken up in the middle of the night. And then that speech that he was, uh, that he gives, you know, Harry to your point about um, the love of his life that, you know, the one that got away and would he be a priest if he was still with this woman or whatever the case might be. Um, That idea, uh, he's just really lovely in that scene. And, and I, I just, I found him so deeply watchable um, that I wished he was in the movie a little bit more, but yeah, he's, he's tremendous. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to, to distract from, from your, uh, what you were doing. totally. I mean, also. any opportunity to bring up Harper is a win for me. So <laughs> sure. It's all good. Fair enough. I feel like I have to go a little bit, um, you know, you both chose sort of sincere scenes. I thought this whole, <laughs> not subplot, but like all of the scenes with the Jewish mothers introducing their Jewish daughters, you know, as if this, this whole shidduch thing with uh, Rabbi Jake, I thought was very Jewish. And is that, you know, uh, Daniel, is that true to your experience? Would you say? <laughs> yeah. Did you yeah. find that there were a lot of, we uh, paraded Jewish around? Yeah. Well, on my turn as the rabbi on the TV show, uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I feel like, I just feel like maybe there were, 
it's either like us trying to, you know, oh, I have a friend who's da da da, and uh, do you know is it is this? Do you know any single guys? You know any single girls for so and so? Like always, you know, with the WhatsApps and the text messages, trying to like do some sort of matchmaking business on the side. I feel like is a, I don't know necessarily that it's um specifically a Jewish thing, but it is something that comes up quite a bit uh, mm-hmm. in our circles. Um, so I thought that was very, and the way that they handled it with it sort of just being very like intense, uh, sort of pushy, you know, thing going on, yep. especially during like the movie theater scene where mm-hmm. they run into like everyone and their mother who's like yeah. seeing this movie. I thought yeah. was very Jewish. Um, yeah. 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 So that's, that's going to be my vote. Uh, that's very, fair. that's fair. Yeah, uh, I, I I like that. I like that a lot. It, I, yeah. The way that it's filmed, kind of show, like shoving it around, it actually oh, yeah. reminds me of a, a movie that hopefully we'll cover soon on the podcast. That Shiva Baby, if you've oh, ever seen yeah, that, yeah. it has sure. a very similar Shiva sequence Shiva. when she yes. walks into the room and you know is kind of inundated. But um, but anyways, that's a good answer. This movie could be. It's possible. Right? Be. This one came first. <laughs> it's it's a technique. But um, I wanted to also ask now about uh, a stretch of the pod. I know this is a movie that I think has so much Jewishness on its surface that it was hard for me to come up creatively with some stretches but daniel before you said you had one that you were excited about so why don't you get us started and uh hit us with your stretch okay really i think you both need to get some tickets to get on board the stretch train with me because this one is really like out there but what do we think about this idea that Polly chopra is god right because of his sort of multi-faith background and the fact that like our pastor is talking to him and there's no one else in the bar and he's in this sort of like drunk stupor uh, I, I just thought like this decision to make Polly Chopra played by Brian George, the bartender whom uh, father Brian is like talking to at the beginning of the movie. Cause the whole film is essentially like a flashback. I don't know if we mentioned that yet uh, up to a certain point for a good portion of the movie where, you know, Brian's telling his story to, to Polly Chopra, the bartender who has Jewish roots, Indian roots, uh, Catholic roots. He has all all sorts of stuff going on in his history. And the fact that he's just a very open listener and, you know, it could just be he that he's a bartender or it could be that he's maybe God. I rest my case. I don't, I, I don't hate that theory. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is obviously uh, the aforementioned stretch, but I, I do think that, um, yeah, it, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I think that I mean, listen, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of that narrative, um, you know, sort of structure. Um, just in terms of like, it just feels a little lazy, <laughs> uh, and 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 it's it certainly feels it feels more lazy in this context too, because it's one thing to like you know, and, and this happens all the time, more so in pilots than in movies, but that sort of in media res thing where like you start in a place that's so like, what the fuck that you, that you want to see how we got there. Right. Um, this isn't that, this is just like, we have a drunk priest. Like why, you know what I mean? Like why, why should I care? Mm-hmm. Um, necessarily. Uh, so when it does Bolt back on itself at the end. I was like, "Oh, right! I forgot that we even had this bar thing." So yeah, right. it, it's it's a little it's a little pointless to me, but yeah. I mean, Edward Norton taking big swings on this movie, so you know, it's trying. Got to yes. commit. Are you're from Canada? Is that correct? I am from Toronto. Yes, Toronto. So I mean, can I bring up Wayne Gretzky and say that like you, you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take? So I'm just saying. <laughs> This is true. I, I'm sure that Edward Norton was thinking of Wayne Gretzky when he was making this film. That's that what feels, I think. That feels likely. Yeah. Okay. 
I, uh, Daniel, you know, you've asked us to get on board for a lot of deep stretches and it's been a struggle in the past. Uh, I'm going to, I'm really into this one. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Well, you have this voice that's just listening to the story. I mean, he, he's acting as the priest. He's pretending it's a confessional. He says, tell me your story. He coaches him back onto the right path. Right. I think I was reading about the actor, Brian George, that has like a very similar, like similarly eclectic religious background that also grew up in a bunch of different places. And I, uh. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is what Edward Norton intended. If we ever meet him, I'm we should sure ask him is. about it. Sure. That but, should be um, your first question when you ask Edward Norton. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll go to a Q&A and just start with that. Yeah. But uh, I'm into it, Daniel. I like it. Any stretches from y'all? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not... Here's what I'll say. The stretch for me in this film, or when this film seems to be stretching itself... Is is with the 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 broadly comedic stuff like the, the rabbi baseball cards is a stretch to me. That stuff just I mean it just it's it 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 didn't work for me. But you know that that, that that's my that is my I interpretation so of, of this bit. So I think they do exist. I I'll, I'll do really? some research. I feel like there had definitely been so Jewish themes. I looked them for sure. I looked really? them up by name, and I couldn't see the ones that are referenced in the movie. Uh-huh. I was vaguely familiar with the existence of like someone I feel like has once shown me a card, but I don't know. But were they I, made I, uh, because these, of this movie or prior to this movie? I think this series was probably made for the movie, but. I, I feel like growing up in like Jewish day school and stuff like that, there were either biblical theme trading cards or rabbi theme trading cards. Maybe Torah cards. cards. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Torah cards. Yeah, probably you might be onto something. By the way. That sounds more likely than rabbi cards to me. <laughs> Would you believe that Brian George is born to Baghdadi Jewish parents? Sure. So, Sure. That's pretty awesome. Just wanted to, I anyway, think, I'll say Just that. to be clear, my issue with the bartender character isn't his existence. Oh, it's, no, 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 no. It's, just, it's, it's just, just peppering the, yeah, it yeah. in with the, the actor's extra, existence. You know. is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's controversial. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Sorry. Uh, Sorry no, for that I, diversion. I, I thought it was perfect. interesting. I, uh, I did really like your interpretation just now of, you know, what where the movie's probably maybe stretching itself too thin, which is probably not how we're going to take stretch of the pod going forward, but it, it really but that was my interpretation. I love that. Let's. It's definitely open ended. Um, yeah. I I was thinking about it a little bit. You know, when when you pointed out during the recording that uh, Ruth is the name of the mother. You know, Ruth is. You know, she, she's obviously it's a common Jewish name, but she's also a character that's you know this very famous convert, like a, a very famous convert. And because of her relationship with Anna, I kind of could have said maybe the movie's trying to say that's why she was ultimately so understanding. I don't know. Didn't develop it enough to make I like it work. That. I like that. It, it feels like if they're going through, you know, if, if they were being conscious with the naming and creating some biblical touchstones, that feels like one that I could see the connection there, but I'm not sure what else to make of that, of that whole thing. That's interesting. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't make that connection, but I think that that's, I think that's, I buy that. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I will uh, get us then to the last question in this uh, quick Q&A that's, uh, that we're going back and forth with. But um, and this is just a question, you know, is this movie good for the Jews? And that could mean to a Jewish audience, to a non-Jewish audience, to anyone seeing this. You know, some movies are pretty obviously bad, some movies not as much. But how would you take this movie? You know, is this you know, a good, proud representation of, uh, of the Jewish experience? Yeah, I don't I think this movie is good for for Jews. I I, I think it's. You know, I think as as we sort of said throughout this episode, I, I think this movie goes out of its way to um, 
you know, to be as universal as possible. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very sort of open armed movie that's trying to sort of welcome as many people into the fold as possible. However, they want to, uh, you know, to embrace religion or community or faith or any of those things. Um, so yeah, I think this movie goes out of its way to be, I, I would argue if anything, it's maybe trying too hard to be inoffensive. Um, you know, I think that it's, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly didn't, nothing, I mean, listen, I, stereotypes exist for a reason, right? I mean, and I, I think to, just in the sense, like how does the cliche become a cliche? It is, so there are things that, you know, obviously I'm just sort of like, you know, you'll kind of roll your eyes at, um, but yeah, nothing, nothing that makes me go like, no, that this is bad for, for, for Jews or in, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think I'm on the same page as you there. I think that there, this movie, like we mentioned earlier, could have decided to get a little bit more granular, granular and ask maybe a couple more challenging questions about faith that sure. might've triggered maybe a more intense response from some people. But ultimately that's not what the movie does. It embraces love. It embraces interfaith, you know, discourse. It's, it's all about, yep. like you said, universalism, bringing everyone together. So I'd say this one's pretty good. And it's, yeah. it's also cool to just show up. I think a lot of the particulars, Oh, you with me? Yeah. I think it's, also really cool to show off just a lot of the particulars yeah. of you know a really vibrant synagogue and show a lot of Jewish life. Like I I like the idea that this probably went on to a major release in you know theaters and people who maybe didn't grow up on the Upper West Side near a Jewish community got to see totally. you know some of what that looked like. Yeah I mean yeah. I I think that if I you know one of the things that I do think it it, it could stand to be a little bit better at is that, you know, it's a very white movie. Um, I, I, right. I think that, you know, Ken Lung aside and, and the black actor at the end who doesn't get a line mm-hmm. um, of that, that's, you know, I do kind of feel like uh, if this movie was made today, hopefully there'd be more of a concerted effort to embrace all kinds of different faiths and different races and, and what have you. Um, but again, like, I, I can't really ding it that hard. I mean, it came out in 2000. Um, you know, it's it's trying to be as sort of, uh, you know, open-armed as possible. So Yeah. yeah. It's not often that um, my wife, Yafa, will watch a movie that we're watching in preparation for the podcast. Obviously, she's my biggest fan. She supports everything I do, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, but this is a rom-com. And, like, we had heard she saw the movie a while ago, and we were discussing that very point. And I do feel like... It is somewhat true to the Upper West Side Jewish experience that it's mostly Ashkenaz Jews, mostly white Jews and things like that. But I could uh, see it being a much more rich representation if they had Jews of color or Sephardic Jews, you know, uh, represented in some way, shape or form. I feel like overall, you know, this ticks my box of the way that Judaism is represented in terms of it doing a good job of, you know, having the bar mitzvah practice, having Rabbi Jake wear a cool leather jacket, but also put on to fill in and like this, this whole Shabbat lighting, this candle lighting scene, yeah. a, a lot of it's stuff, a lot of good stuff in there. You know, they did take a, they did drop in a nice line about the JTS basketball team. That's Jewish theological seminary, uh, not being a very good basketball team for Rabbi Jake and father Brian to practice on. Um, Good, overall, I don't I, think sink a single shot. No, no, I think that was really funny that their decision to like, yeah. yeah. Even Um, when it's just the two of them, they can't, they can't actually sink any shots. Usually they, they, you know, there's like this nice device usually with basketball scenes is they shoot and then they have a nice cutaway of a beautiful switch. So the decision I thought was very funny. (laughs) Um, And I, I think, you know, 
portraying Rabbi Jake as like a complex individual with struggles. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I thought it was pretty good for the Jews. So yeah, overall, I think, uh, overall, I think it was a a pretty solid portrayal for the Jews. Yeah. But before we move on from here, because you you mentioned that uh, the bar mitzvah scene, you know, the the kid laying. Barah, barah, Elohim, Elohim, and Hashareds. I'm still laughing thinking about it because I just love the way that sounded. Like, you know, editor's note when we're going back to this, I want to just loop in, you know, that full kind of 30 seconds of him running through the laning. And maybe if you're listening to this on headphones, just lower the volume a little bit because it's a little rough. But wow, that that was my favorite scene. <laughs> I, he, I mean, guy. it's it's funny you bring up that scene because um, we uh, on our 2009 Patreon did an episode on A Serious Man, mm-hmm. um, which is a tremendous movie. Yeah. Um, you're never going to touch that bar mitzvah scene. You're, you're just, you're never going to touch this kid being high out of his mind oh, and just the, the, just the nightmare of like everything. It's just, it's tremendous. So yeah. I, but, but this I scene think is keeping the faith. Yeah. I think the scene in keeping the faith walked so that that one could run. I think <laughs> yeah, that's that, nice. the, that gives, this one gives you that, you know, the, the pubescent 13 year old mm-hmm. boy mm-hmm. struggling. And there we yeah. get to see the, that's extreme. more of an existential. What is it all mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. exactly. What was his mantra? It's like, it's okay to suck or something like that. Yes. In this yeah. Movie, yeah. Yeah. Um, embrace the suck or something. Embrace, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. like when he's actually laning, I feel like he would, I don't know. I noticed this maybe as like an editor who's like maybe too, mm-hmm. a, too attuned to like the details, but his eyes were like looking up here. It's almost as if he was like memorizing it. Anyway, uh-huh. Uh-huh. little, little details, little granular things. details, sure. but sure. Um, let's talk numbers. Let's talk Turkey. You know, it's on a scale of one to five Jewish stars in terms of cast and crew content and themes. Where does this film, Keeping the Faith, came uh, released in 2000, where does it sit in the pantheon of Jews on Film films? Who um, wants to start? Bill, I'll, like I'll to go started? first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I when you reached out to me and, were, and was like, you know, do you want to come on the pod? And, and I was sort of um, looking at overtly Jewish films, like literally Googled like most Jewish movies, right? And, you know, the, the, the usual suspects came up, all of which I, I, I'm not sure that I would have felt particularly comfortable talking about. Um, this movie, I think, I mean, written by a Jew, obviously, I, I think leans, you know, Jake getting the overt love story. I would I'd probably argue that he's maybe more of the protagonist than Brian is. Um, so I don't know. I, I it's certainly a movie that came to mind. It's a movie when you said Jewish movies. So I don't know that it's like a five, but it's probably like a four for me in terms of like feeling, um, you know, a movie that I think of when you ask me about Jewish movies. So that says something. I mean, it's obviously Jewish enough that, I mean, other than your, you know, your obvious usual suspects, it definitely was one that came to mind. Awesome. So you're going four. I'm going to say four, four. Okay. Harry. I really agree. I mean, you know, we're talking cast and crew and Ben Stiller is Jewish, you know, famously. So we get, you know, accurate representation there. Ed Norton, who directed this, is not Jewish. Not that, you know, has to be Jewish director, although I actually did read about him. There was a quote that came out around the time of this movie where he said he was like this proxy Jew in his community and went to more than 10 bar mitzvahs for his friends. So he considers himself, you know, (laughs) partially Jewish, whatever that. That means, I don't so, think you know going what? to bar mitzvahs the, makes you Jewish, just for what it's worth. It doesn't. I don't want to. I don't want to misquote him. So maybe we'll we'll find the real quote okay. later okay. and get it exact. Sure. But uh, but something along those lines. 
But um, but yeah, this is a movie that is not afraid of its Jewishness. Like that is really a part of, you know, content we say, like the text of the movie, it, there, it's so much there. I really agree with you that I think Jake's story and that community is what the movie's focused on. We don't get so much of Brian, you know, other than his relationship with, you know, Milos Forman and like a couple mm-hmm. scenes in the beginning in his church. The movie doesn't go down that path. I mean, it really is telling this, you know, conflicted story about the Jewish community, I think more so than anything. And I think thematically, like, doesn't get more Jewish than these questions of balancing faith, tradition, community, you know, progressivism, you know, how that kind of all intersects and where that meshes with, you know, following your heart. Obviously, that that's the rom-com of this movie, but that that's a big Jewish question. So it's hard for me not to give this, you know, like you said, there are usual suspects that might be the fives. And this one, I'm not sure if it's all the way up there. It's not the most Jewish movie, but four and a half like this is I was surprised that I'd never heard of this movie and it was so Jewish and I loved it for that where do you feel about it Daniel you'd never okay so it's interesting I uh I was talking about this uh movie or talking about the podcast with my brother-in-law and he said oh have you done keeping the faith that was like his go-to movie so I'm glad we discussed it I mean it would be mine if someone ever told me I had never heard of it but now like yeah I I vaguely remember but I don't think I've seen it before I think you know the job the film has a pretty you know Ben Stiller's dad was Jewish and then I think his mother and Mara uh, converted later on after they were married so whatever yeah well well word points there uh you know Milos Forman's dad was his biological dad, he found out later in life, was Jewish. Uh, his mom, I don't know, but he, whatever. Eli Wallach is Jewish. Um, we have Brian George, you know, our Polly Chopra character. Like you mentioned, Phil, we have Lisa Edelstein, and then we have Rena Sofer, I think. It was Rachel Rose, our, our newscaster, a lot of, and David Wayne. A lot of Jews in there. Ron Rifkin, I think, is is he not Jewish? The guy oh, who yeah. Plays the, he's he's he the is, board president, yeah, right? Yeah. Got it. And, um, and, and Susie from Curb. Pretty oh, sure yeah. she's Jewish. Yeah, you know, pretty. Susie Anne Bancroft, right? I believe, is Jewish. That oh, that's Mel Brooks's wife, right? Wife, or, correct. Uh, yeah, um, she's Italian. I think. Oh, okay. So um, but she plays the Jewish mom. So, and she's married to Mel Brooks. Which what could be yeah, more? Jewish? If you're not married, to, if you're married to Mel Brooks, you're an honorary Jew, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that, that that's, that's that's canon that's from now on. That's canon, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you don't have to yeah. go to any bar mitzvahs. You can no. exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. No. You're in the club. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that, like you said, you know, the story is super Jewish and all the depictions love it. Um, it's not a fully Jewish movie because, you know, two thirds of the movie is not Jewish, you know, like we have Anna's character and we have father Brian's character and the themes that we struggle with and just, and discuss tradition, modernity, faith and religion, mm-hmm. karaoke. I mean, there it's all there. Um, so I think I'm going to go 4.18, you know, 18 oh, being wow. the high number. Okay. So, uh, I gotta be different, you know, but, uh, that's, that's sort of where I'm landing. Um, Phil Iskov, I wanted to thank you very much for being on this podcast. Of course, and, my pleasure. Discussing the film, Keeping the Faith. I wanted to ask at this time if there's anything you'd like to plug or promote. Uh, you know, I mean, listen, um, listen to listen to podcast. I guess 1992. Uh, I, I, I host the podcast with uh, Emily St. James, where we talk about the films of 1992. Uh, also have a Patreon podcast, I guess Double Features, where I talk about two movies or songs or TV episodes and compare and contrast them. Um, you can sign up for that at uh, www.patreon backslash podcast like it's. You can follow me on Twitter at PM Iscove, same on Instagram. You can also follow us at Podcast Like It's on both Instagram and Twitter as well. Um, and if you feel like it, uh, go watch Sippy Hollow on Hulu. I, I make a whole penny off of every time someone watches that. So, you know, that's nice too. 
the joys of streaming uh, royalty Resituals. checks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Love it. exactly. We will rally up all of our listeners and get them <laughs> please to do. binge please watch do. it while they're sleeping, just running through. We'll do That'd that be for great. you. Yeah, so we could, I could make a whole 50 cents. It would be great. Yeah. We and got I know you. it's like picking your favorite children, but are there any like recent episodes that you're particularly excited about that you'd want to share? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, on our podcast, like 1992, you know, um, I don't know when this is dropping, so I can't speak to, uh, that specifically, but in some, some post episodes that, that, uh, I mean, we opened with, uh, SD Heim came on to talk about Aladdin with us. Um, we've had, uh, lots of great films that we've been covering, uh, single white female, uh, as you mentioned, the aforementioned cool world episode is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 been it's 1982 is a, a fascinating year. It, it's a it's a kind of weird uh, sort of influx moment where we're sort of in between the 80s and the 90s haven't really defined themselves just yet. So, and we're sort of in that cusp moment before special effects become everything and studio franchises and all of that kind of stuff really take off. So it, it, it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun talking about movies like, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula or Malcolm X or any number of just uh, really interesting films um, with just some really exciting guests. So I, I hope that you guys will check it out. Awesome. Make sure to check out podcasts like it's 90, 1992 and everything that Phil said, we'll definitely put our link in the show notes there, but thanks everyone for listening. Make sure to email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions for future movies you'd like us to check out, you can follow us on social media at Jews on Film, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, on all the things. And thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.